Song number 195, as we mark that and use that as Jeff has requested of us a bit later in the service this evening. It is again a tremendous blessing, a fantastic opportunity that we've each been given this evening. And as I look over the audience, certainly many of our membership here, visitors also who've come our way, and for every person, we're so thankful and delighted that we've each been blessed with the opportunity to gather like this. As you perhaps continue to keep in mind on the Sunday evening as well as the Sunday morning lessons, we're continuing our journey as we read through the entirety of the Bible this year. And tonight, in fact, we find ourselves in the book of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. As Lucas read just a moment ago from the 12th chapter of that book, let me encourage you to be turning to that location, for therein tonight we shall encamp for a fair amount of the lesson that's before us. We shall, in fact, engage in a character study this evening as we discuss none other than the gentleman named Rehoboam. In so doing, we'll be reminded, among other things, about the life and times of this gentleman named Rehoboam, but we'll also be able to remind ourselves of what the inspired historian had to say about him, and more particularly, some of the mistakes that he unfortunately made. Tonight, as we give thought to that, let's begin then, perhaps like this, appreciating not the least of which is we currently have arrived at about 65% the total of the Holy Scriptures in our reading through it this year, but in particular the book of Second Chronicles. Our reading this past week focused much in that book, and at least another chapter or two remains this week. You might appreciate immediately that some very unusual things took place in that book of Second Chronicles. There are those who, upon considering that book, Look upon it as in some ways a repetition of the book of Second Kings. And to be sure, there is a, a set of notable correspondences. But if you and I would rec recollect that the objective of the two books was very different. In Second Chronicles, we have a presentation of the kings both of Israel and of Judah. And quite often, one switches between the appreciations of them almost with smoothness. The book of Second Chronicles is very different. Second Chronicles cast an almost uniform spotlight on the kingdom of Judah. And so only the kings of Judah are listed in chronological order. And so often, if you ever wonder about the order of them, always go to Second Chronicles. For there they are listed in a chronological fashion. And notice they are not admixed with the kings of Israel. It's only the Judean kings. Because by this point... There was a necessity to give character to that particular dynasty that would ultimately arrive, of course, through the loins of David and would ultimately give rise to Jesus Christ our Lord. And the book of Second Chronicles preserves that information for us. Amazingly enough, you then appreciate this. As the book of Second Chronicles begins, Solomon is first in consideration. The first nine chapters of the book of 2 Chronicles, in fact, highlight his reign, the efforts that he invested in the building of the temple, the characteristic of, in fact, the choices that Solomon made, and many of them at that juncture in life were wise and noteworthy. But as we arrive at chapters 10 and following of 2 Chronicles, now the saga shifts and we look at those successors of Solomon. And one by one, we notice some of them were wise and some of them were not. In fact, far more of them apparently were not than those that were. It might well be in light of that, then that particular slide closes with again a very brief rehearsal of the saga of the days of Judah. 
as you and I push forward with that observation, it brings us to these initial words. I use that phrase, initial words, for the following reason. There seems to be less said about Rehoboam than there was about his father Solomon, and certainly less than about some of those other kings in the ancient era. But these are facts that you and I do know from the Word of God. First of all, he came to the throne upon the death of his father Solomon, and Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. You and I might remember that's much older than many of those who began their reign in that ancient era. Some age 7, some age 8, some age 16, but he was 41. But you will notice that he reigned for a far less amount of time than did his father. Whereas his father Solomon had reigned 40 years, he only reigned 17. At that point, you begin to appreciate some of that which characterizes his reign, and it typically was not very positive. In fact, some of these next statements come before us. We notice that Solomon was so blessed with a strong degree of wisdom. In fact, he wrote for us that book of Proverbs, for example, the book of Ecclesiastes as well. And as we reflect upon him, remember God appeared to him. And in that statement he said, Ask whatever I shall give thee. Solomon had the wisdom to inquire for wisdom. He asked for a wise and an understanding heart, and God granted him that. At this point, notice though, Solomon, in fact, again was blessed later in his life. After the temple was completed, God again appeared to him and complimented him for the direction and the effort his life was taking. At this point, you and I might pause. If God could appear to you and me and did so in an absolute form, would He compliment you and me? Would He pass out a statement of commendation that our choices are wise? Or would He rather severely rebuke us as those who had not done what we could with what we had? That's a very sobering question, isn't it? I might ask, look at how it's different with Solomon's son. We don't have any record that God ever appeared to Rehoboam. And in fact, we seemingly find that his choices were so very foolish. Choices that directed him apart from the ways of God. Choices that impacted others in a very negative way too. It might well be fair to say some of those statements there about the midst of that slide. You'll notice some of these statements about Rehoboam. I'm sure the one thing of Rehoboam that you and I remember almost before anything else is the fact he happened to be the king when the kingdom was divided. Whereas in the days of Saul and in the days of David and in the days of Solomon, it was a unified kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died and Rehoboam was now king, the kingdom split. I wonder what it was that led to that division and what was it that prompted it? Could it have been in part due to the stubbornness and the foolishness of Rehoboam. Tonight, among the other things we shall see, we indeed shall find that that was the case. No wonder then these statements come before us. I would ask you to notice, despite his foolishness, and despite the rather negative way that the Old Testament presents him, it is true he was in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 makes mention of Rehoboam, and it may well be in light of that. That the other than that, the biblical record of this man was not positive. 
Why don't we then revisit 2 Chronicles and make a comparison of his life to what might well be the case today and hope that you and I would do better than he. Let's begin by looking very carefully at that passage that Lucas read just a moment ago. You noticed it a very brief passage, but oh, what volume is contained within it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, a rather encompassing statement regarding this man named Rehoboam is given. I would again ask you to note it as I read it. Speaking of Rehoboam, it says, And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. A very simple pronouncement, isn't it? He did evil. Unlike David, his grandfather, and unlike Solomon, his father, unlike others who had set examples far more attuned to what was positive and godly, this man did evil. When you and I remember that his dad was Solomon, one who again was so wise and who again was one who often had such opportunity for good, and yet his son did so evil. But you notice immediately the reasoning why is given. We aren't left to wonder. It says he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Rehoboam did evil, but why? And that is so important, isn't it? He did evil because, the text informs us, he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. It does require a preparation of heart in order to seek God appropriately, doesn't it? God is not served accidentally. And it is not the case He is served happenstantially or even circumstantially. It requires a dedication and a devotion of heart, and Rehoboam lacked it. At the age of 41, when he became that one that was king, we find the record often was one that was so very less than what it could have been. Why? Because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. It requires a preparation of heart, a devotion, a commitment of mind and spirit. And you and I might pause to ask, what about the nature and the character of that commitment? So many of the greatest matters of importance in life are such that they are prompted by commitment, aren't they? If a marriage is to work, it requires commitment on the part of both the man and the woman each one committed to each other just as surely as they're committed unto God and His law. An employer wants an employee that's committed to the well-being of the company and the integrity of his or her job. Ask any coach and he or she wants a player that's dedicated to the team and who is willing to sacrifice for the well-being and the success of the, of the team. It is the case then, isn't it here, that this man Rehoboam didn't prepare his heart to seek the Lord. That heart was prepared for other purposes and he chose other ways in life. It may be because of those thoughts that some of these matters so quickly come before us. That word prepare literally means to fix. It identifies a characteristic in which boundaries have been determined and pursuits have been set. And Rehoboam didn't make it. His pursuits were elsewhere. His directives in life were pointed in other matters. Today, isn't it still the case that so many, it seems, have their highest pursuits in life directed in ways that leave God out of the equation completely? 
They seemingly find their happiness, their intent, and their source in every way other than the ways of the Word of God. Somewhat reminds us of Rehoboam, doesn't it? As always, the question is begged of each of us. Are you and I preparing our heart to seek the Lord? Notice it requires an ongoing preparation. It's not that that verb was a one-time activity. It describes a process that's an ongoing matter, ever desirous of learning and implementing, applying those ways of the law of God. How did Jesus make that point? In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, didn't the Master Himself say, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That was a message, a lesson that those apostles, and yea, even the disciples at large on that occasion, were exceedingly needful of understanding. In John chapter 6, verses 66 and following, the precious message of the Lord on that occasion, sufficiently directive and sufficiently hard, many of them chose to walk no more with Him. You'll notice why they weren't preparing their heart to seek the Lord. Perhaps in fairness to that, how was it that Paul echoed those sentiments in Galatians 2.20? Here, as he addressed the Galatian congregations, Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul recognized well, didn't he, that his life needed to be an ongoing, continual preparation with a desire to seek the very pleasures and means of serving the God of heaven. Wasn't it said of Jesus in John 8, 29, that He always did that which was pleasing to the Father? Surely those kinds of matters greatly encourage us along that way to not make the same spiritually fatal mistake that Rehoboam made. It may well be, furthermore, in Matthew 6, 33, didn't Jesus again in that Sermon on the Mount say that if we seek His kingdom first, that all those things of which He was speaking would be added to us. Surely, as we rest upon that confidence, and Jeff has led us to sing these wonderful songs encouraging us in that way of godliness, surely these final comments are so very appropriate. For we are apprised in the Bible of others besides Rehoboam who chose the wrong path. Demas, after all, forsook Paul. The text says he loved this present world, 2 Timothy 4.10. Notice there he had stopped preparing. The matter of preparation then runs so deep, doesn't it? From the time a youngster is so very small, the seeds of preparation can begin to germinate and to grow as their life ultimately arises to the point they could be such a strong and powerful servant of the Lord. Maybe among other things, this tells us that there were many times apparently Solomon wasn't the noteworthy father he could have been. That's a shame, isn't it? You and I as parents, those in the audience, may we never lose sight of the fact that the preparation of our children in many ways hinges strongly upon us. Do we help them along that way by setting before them the right example of a father, a mother, a husband, a wife? Do they see in us what we hope they one day will be as faithful servants in the kingdom of God? Surely, in light of that, Habakkuk's statement that closes that book, 
Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and following, presents a strong commendation of faithfulness even under matters of duress. There, that faithfulness highlighted because Rehoboam, you notice, was the son of the king. He lived in the lap of luxury, and yet he still never prepared his heart. Maybe in light of all that, we come to that close of that slide, and we notice the opposite state of affairs in the man named Ezra. We highlighted him in passing this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8. And we notice that as he preached standing on that pulpit of wood, and as he did so from morning until noonday, that takes us back to what was it that allowed Ezra to be the kind of man that he was. It's because he did the very opposite of Rehoboam. In Ezra 7 verse number 10, the statement is made, Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Notice, Rehoboam did not prepare his heart, but Ezra did. World of difference between the servicing of those two, isn't there? Are you and I more like Ezra, or are we more like Rehoboam? Are we encouraging others about us to be more like an Ezra or more like a Rehoboam? That question is so very profound in many ways, isn't it? The mistake that you and I have seen so far about Rehoboam speaks enough, but that unfortunately wasn't the only one. I suspect it was the major guiding one that led to these other mistakes, but let's look at some additional factors presented in Second Chronicles about him as well. We come now to this consideration, and we make reference to a descriptive of his life that is still such a noteworthy problem in the mind of many today, and maybe it causes you and I to stumble on occasion. What about the attribute of stubbornness? Some would call it obstinacy. What is this character, and what do we see in the life of Rehoboam that brings us to appreciate what great negativity and what great problem this brings? As we study about Rehoboam, I would invite all of us to be very honest with ourselves. Do I tend to be stubborn when I shouldn't be, needn't be, ought not be? And for that reason, do I bring hardship upon those I love? Do I bring in their life what really needs not be there? Let's study about Rehoboam for a moment. In so doing, revisit with me the scene of the closing days of Solomon and what was those opening days of the reign of Rehoboam. We well remember that Solomon had an exceedingly noteworthy building program. Many presidents and Roman kings, for example, they all enjoyed building great things as monuments to themselves. Trajan did it. Many of the others did too. As you think about them, though, notice it wasn't just a matter of the Roman kings. Sometimes there were great building projects even among the Israelite kings. And none stands at the top of that heap any more than Solomon. Those buildings that he constructed, like that very extravagant palace, that was his place to live, and that extremely luxurious temple, all the money that went into the gold and the silver and the metallic matters and the fine ornaments, all of that didn't come free. Solomon had to tax the people exceedingly heavily to raise the money in order to build all of that. And the people didn't much like it. What a surprise. 
High tax rates often are not very pleasing to people. Well, so was it the case here. In fact, so much opposite to that was the people that in fact after Solomon died and when Rehoboam began his reign, the people approached him tactfully, but nonetheless very directly and said, As heavy as the tax rate has been in the days of your father, lessen it for us. After all, all the buildings are now constructed. They simply made a plea to reduce somewhat the ongoing rate of tax. At this point, Solomon asked them to go away and to come back in three days and he would have an answer for them, a response to the request that they had made. The first thing that Solomon did, or rather that Rehoboam did, he sought advice from those that were the counselors of the day. First, he asked the advice of those that were the counselors to his father. These wise and aged men who had a wealth of experience beneath them. And he inquired of them, What do you hear in regard to this request? Should I in fact grant that which is the request or not? Those older gentlemen very kindly, but also rather directly said, This people will be an exceedingly committed and devoted people to you if you will hear them. And if you will in fact show them a characteristic of an interest in what they say. At this point, perhaps it wouldn't have even taken a great reduction in the tax rate. At this point, Rehoboam asked them to depart and he then asked the character of advice from those that were his own age. Those that had grown up with him. His running buddies, if you please. They said just the opposite. They said, whereas your father taxed them heavily, you tax them even more. You raise the tax rates. And in so doing, you let them know immediately who is the authority in this kingdom. And you let them know that you will not, in fact, be directed by what they request. You show them, in fact, who is the one calling the shots in this kingdom. At that point, Rehoboam had his decision made. Three days later, the people came back and he spoke very roughly to them. He spoke with an air of disdain concerning them. And in so doing, he let them know that whereas my father taxed you greatly, you haven't seen anything yet. At that point, the people went to their tents. They agreed that we have nothing more in David. What they had once enjoyed as a unified kingdom, the authority of the government now no longer had an interest in them. And so it was that they chose to rebel. Ten of the tribes went their own way. Whereas at one time there had been a unified set of twelve tribes, those who were beneath the single banner of the leadership of God, ten of them now were gone. They chose to follow a different power. They chose to recognize that in Rehoboam they had no representative at all. He cared not for them. He wasn't interested in anything but what funds they could provide to the treasuries of the king. When those ten left, that now brings us back to recognize what it was that befell the empire. The stubbornness of Rehoboam led to a division of the kingdom. The stubbornness of Rehoboam led to the ultimate matter of the demise of the unified kingdom of Israel. What a tragedy. What a very sorry thing that came about because of it. Look at some of these thoughts that bring us to the matter before us. We find in chapters 10 and following the unfolding of that particular situation that I just mentioned. He answered them roughly. 
He spoke to them with harsh language and harsh words, and the ten tribes then revolted. They rebelled. At this point, look at what then befell them. What a sense of foolishness is often given in the Bible as a description of those that harden their heart in ways like that. What was often said about Pharaoh, that Egyptian monarch back in the book of Exodus? He hardened his heart, whereas God had said, Let my people go. Time and again, Pharaoh would not do it. After all, he had some free labor at his disposal. He wasn't interested in releasing them. He hardened his heart even after seeing the miracles that Moses could perform, even after seeing what God did through Moses and Aaron. That still did not prompt him to let go of the stubbornness that was characteristic of his way. Not only a Pharaoh, but could it not be said in regard to the captivity even of the people of Israel? We well remember in 2 Chronicles 36, God directly asserted of their foolishness and of the stubbornness that was characteristic of the people of Israel. That's a rather sad statement, isn't it? Maybe that sadness takes us to the very bottom of that slide that's an admonition to all of us today. And I quote, Harden not your heart. From time to time, as you and I gather, there are individuals that need to respond to the gospel. And yet, hearts continue to be hardened. I'll wait for a better day. I'll wait for a more convenient time. I'll wait for another circumstance, a situation, and you may be granted with it. And others that are with us from time to time may enjoy that opportunity and blessing, but it isn't promised. It is not guaranteed. Harden not your heart. The children of Israel hardened their heart, and we all remember a number of things that were characteristic of their way. In the days of Noah, Noah preached to them for decades. He was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 verse 5. And finally the day came that the rain started. The door of the ark at that point was shut. There was no longer an opportunity to respond. Harden not your heart as in the days of provocation. The children of Israel, they too in the wilderness wandering, hardened their heart from time to time. They disbelieved the God of heaven, Numbers chapter 13. And in so doing, they were forced to wander for decades longer. The hardening of the heart. Today, you and I can suffer from a hard heart too. We know our medical professionals often speak of the hardening of the arteries, especially as a person ages. This is a far more serious condition than that. The hardening of the heart. Wasn't it true Paul spoke about that is a very serious matter in 1 Timothy chapter 4? He spoke about that circumstance in which the conscience would be seared. No longer could it be touched with the greatness and the marvel of truth. It was seared in the way that was wrong and ungodly, and therein would it remain. We live in an age and a time when that continues to be the case, doesn't it? Hearts are hardened and consciences are seared. May we ever have a conscience that's tender in relation to the Word of God, ever able to be plied and formed in the way God would have it. If we ever harden our heart against that which is godly, we doom ourselves separated from God, aloof from His blessings, and distant from that which He has to offer in goodness and blessing. Look what happened to Rehoboam. The kingdom split in two, and it wasn't even an even split. He only was blessed to reign over a small section of it. 
Only Benjamin and Judah remained with him. Everybody else left. What a sad thing. It didn't have to be that way. As you and I reflect upon that, perhaps that slide closes with a reminder today about this attitude of stubbornness. How many a family, in fact, almost breaks beneath the burden of having to deal with stubbornness. One member of the family or perhaps a small group is motivated by what is not logic and what is not analysis. They choose, in fact, to, it seems, bring about trouble when they can because they aren't willing in any way to see the viewpoint of others. We realize in human family there is an absolute truth from God, but on matters of expediency in which God has not legislated, we surely must realize someone else may have a better idea than I do, and they may have a better approach than I do, and surely I need to be ready to adopt and to listen to that which they have to say. Sometimes in a family and sometimes in the church, those things seemingly are hard to find, aren't they? And it ought not be. Maybe in light of all those things, that slide closes with that text in Proverbs 6.16. Among the things that God hates, He hates that proud look. He hates those that elevate themselves in which they seemingly condescend in their viewpoint toward others. Surely these errors on the part of Rehoboam, evil on the one hand and now stubbornness on the other, brings us perhaps to consider this one as well. The misdirection of which we might speak of his nature. I say misdirection because of a development that happened after the kingdom was split. Remember a moment ago we made the observation that ten of those tribes chose to go a different way because they found no basis, no representation in the current king. Notice what Solomon, or rather what Rehoboam then chose to do. He got the army together. And he, in fact, was going to start war with the remaining ten tribes, insisting that they come back, forcing them to do so. He was going to fight against his own people of God. At that point, God brought words to a prophet named Shemaiah. And he, in fact, gave Shemaiah the commission, You go and you tell Rehoboam, do you not fight against the people of the northern kingdom? Don't fight against them. Isn't that a reminder that his misdirection, he didn't see in it anything about the error of his own way. He thought these rebels needed to be corrected. He seemingly saw no reflection of his own mistakes anywhere in it. Isn't it still interesting how sometimes people can see mistakes in everybody but themselves? Everyone else is in the wrong. Others made the foolish choices and others have misdirected their way, but... Never is that true of me. That's what some people seemingly think, isn't it? Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 7, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with much judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured unto you again. Didn't Solomon write it like this in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse 1? Cast not thy bread on the waters, for it shall return unto thee not many days hence. It's often then the case that perhaps that's the closest the Bible ever comes to saying the chickens do come home to roost. If you and I proceed to act in that way of foolishness and folly and misdirection, it isn't just everyone else's fault. 
the fault does rest with me and with you on occasion. Surely, in light of that thought, the misdirection of Rehoboam's way leads us to appreciate that that's another very sad reflection upon him. Today, I'm sure we can each think of examples in the workplace. We can think of examples maybe even in the family or in the church in which we have seen this kind of personal elevation rear its ugly head. Every one of those instances takes us to a number of cases in the New Testament in which we find individuals who were motivated by self-jealousy, motivated by that air of importance. We each can think of diatrophies in the book of 3 John. There was a gentleman who the text expressly says forbade them and threw them out of the church. He thought so much of his own judgment and of his own position that he lorded it over everyone else. John dealt with him when he arrived and when he came. Third John verse 11 tells us. Maybe in fairness to all those things, we close that thought with that statement of ignorance that's found at the very bottom of that slide. Isn't it amazing? I find it truly remarkable when you and I read in the Bible about some individuals who acted in a certain way, and the God was not even with them. And they apparently thought that He was. They were completely aloof from the fact that God wasn't even with them. Think about the man Samson, for example. You might remember that he was blessed with superhuman strength, as it were. It came, of course, by the blessing and gift of God toward him, but after his hair was cut... Delilah, in fact, treasoned him, as you will remember, with me in Judges 16. Isn't it true that he went out to fight and the text says he wasn't even aware that God wasn't with him? That's a shame, isn't it? What about you and me today? Wouldn't it be an awful and tragic thing to go about and God not even be with you and you not know it? You and I are given the assurance and the promise in Scripture that He is with those who are with Him, who follow by obedience those matters He has given. Did He not say, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee? To borrow the words of Matthew 28, 20, as well as Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, stated to those who have obeyed His commandment and do so day by day, walking in the blessedness of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Maybe it is in regard to that. We then can ask one more time about the error of Rehoboam. Here was one who in stubbornness led to the splitting of the kingdom. And God had to tell him not to do what he was about to do. He wasn't even aware apparently that what he was about to do in decision was against the law of God. As you and I think about the day-to-day -day decisions we make, do we pray for His leadership and His guidance that what we do undertake is in accordance to His will? Rehoboam apparently didn't. It may well be in light of all of that that we come to this status and this placement in the lesson tonight. It is a set of consequences. I have always found this to be a very sad observation. You and I in our Bible studies and even in the lessons from time to time, we observe the extravagance of that temple. What Solomon invested for so many years with so many workers. 
I've even tabulated some of the statistics for you. We are told in express words that there were over 180,000 laborers laboring over a period of in excess of seven years to build that temple. It was exquisite beyond anything else the ancient world to that point had seen. Now think about it like this. After the reign of Solomon, how long did that temple stand before enemies came and proceeded to ransack it? And before enemies came and began to tarnish and mar what it had stood for? Well, you'll notice I've tabulated it for me. 34 years after Solomon built it, due in part to the foolishness of Rehoboam, we begin to see that he set in motion a set of events that ultimately led to the Egyptian king Shishak coming and ultimately taking out of that temple many of the precious treasures that had been placed in it. Thirty-four years, that's all it lasted. Now it wasn't destroyed then because God didn't allow that to happen. But already, less than three and a half decades after its construction, it began to be overrun because God's people had turned away from Him. That is a warning among so many others. It reminds us, the church of today, how very careful we must ever be to remain loyal and allegiant and true and faithful in every regard. No wonder these final words then surely are fair enough to, to make note of as well. If Rehoboam, as our study tonight has shown, was one who made so many mistakes and was guilty of such wrongs, is it not perhaps almost to be expected that his son Abijam was no better ruler than he was? Abijam, in fact, has even less positive statements made about him than Rehoboam did, if you can believe it. Maybe you and I can see one more time how careful the Bible gives us examples of those who did make mistakes. And the reason surely is that you and I might not make the same mistakes they made. Let's then revisit very briefly in a summary fashion that which we've seen this evening. In so doing, you'll notice Rehoboam's wrongs have been the emphasis. In 2 Chronicles 12, we have an explicit statement, He did evil in the sight of the Lord because He prepared not His heart. May we prepare our heart. Furthermore, His stubbornness is a highlight of chapters 10 and 11. May you and I not be guilty of that kind of thing. And finally, the misdirection of His way. May we have a better direction, a sweeter direction, a heavenly direction. Tonight, is that direction descriptive of you? If not, let's close this lesson with a very pertinent question. Are you preparing your heart to seek the Lord like Ezra? If you are, then continue that walk through life and never veer either to the left or to the right. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. If, however, you are not preparing your heart and you know the preparation is lacking, you know it's missing. You really don't even need me or anyone else to affirm it. You know what the Bible says. You have read it enough, you've heard it enough. Why not do something about it? If that's the status and the saga of your life, you realize that just like Rehoboam ended so sadly, yours might well do the same. Make a change tonight. This 31st day of August, the year 2014, could be that day in which all eternity hinges toward the positive direction for you. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you in a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, 
you realize that that call does manifest itself in the demand for this. Believe. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is who He said that He was. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God. And hasten at once to be baptized. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and following. If you need to come back to your first love, just like the Ephesians did in Revelation 2.5, we could help you with that too. We'd pray with you. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in either of these ways, let us not make the mistake in stubbornness and remain lost. Let's respond at once and do so while together we stand and while we sing.